Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to episode 212 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today is another milestone. No, unfortunately I haven't made it yet to be the 36th most popular UK True Crime Podcast. One can but hope. But on November the 25th, it will be four years since I recorded my first podcast. And here I am still. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me when there are so many demands on your time. More good news is the book I'm writing with Chris Clark on the life and crimes of Angus Sinclair has been accepted by our good friends at Mango Publishing. Check them out. We will complete the manuscript by the 31st of December this year. We already have an astonishing tale to tell, but we want the book to be as thorough as possible. So if you have any information at all about Angus Sinclair, do please contact me in confidence via any of my social channels. Today's story is from Northern Ireland during the Troubles. It's a heartbreaking tale of murder and loss. But before we get to that, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially the new members of this most exclusive club, that is Joanne Offord, Hans Gruber, Steve Daly and Laura West. Thank you all so much for your support. Why not buy the true crime fan in your life the gift of an annual Patreon membership? Gosh, should I really just say that? For about £20 a year. You still have two months free if you buy it now. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Have you played this game yet? I might only be on level 91, but I already love Best Fiends, as it's a casual game that you can just play when you have a few minutes free. I play it when I'm waiting to pick my children up from various activities. It's great, as you don't need internet connection. I played earlier today for 20 minutes when I was waiting to pick my dog up from the vet, socially distanced of course in the waiting room. I really enjoy the challenging puzzles and the gameplay is awesome, with amazing characters who you collect during the game, and who can be used strategically later on. Like me, I guarantee you'll love the vibrancy of the colour quality of the game design, which is always a huge deal for me. So why not come and join me on Best Fiends? Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Okay, let's set the scene for today's story and play our guest the month year game. Top of the UK music charts was Rene and Renata with Save Your Love. If you're too young to recall this, take a few minutes to watch it on YouTube. On second thoughts, don't bother. The Jam written number two with Beat Surrender. Mickey by Tony Basil was in the top spot in the US, and in Australia, Eye of the Tiger from Survivor was number one. That was a song that the Mighty League United used to run out to when I started being a regular at Ellen Road in the 1980s, so it evokes lots of memories for me. In the news this month in Texas, 
Charles Brooks Jr. became the first person to be executed by lethal injection in the US. An earthquake hit northern Yemen, killing 2,000 people. It was the UK release of the film Gandhi, which would later win eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director and Best Actor. And at the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp, protesting about plans to hold nuclear weapons at RAF Greenham Common in Berkshire, 30,000 women held hands and formed a human chain around the nine-mile perimeter fence. Did you get the month and year? It was December 1982. Today we return to Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Once more, let me state that I'm not taking a political view in this podcast, but we do need to touch a bit on the politics to set the context for the story. And by just briefly mentioning some events, it doesn't mean that I see them as any less significant than others, and we'll probably come back to them on another podcast. It's just that this isn't the story I want to tell today. So let's set a bit more context of what was happening at the time. It was only in 1981 when 10 Republican prisoners died of starvation during a hunger strike. Bobby Sands was the first to die and his death had a major effect. Over 100,000 people attended his funeral mass in West Belfast. In the early 80s, the IRA were carrying out a campaign of terror in mainland England, including the dreadful attacks in London's Hyde Park and Regent's Park, killing four soldiers, seven bandsmen and seven horses. I've covered this in previous podcasts. Also active at this time in Northern Ireland were the Irish National Liberation Army, an Irish Republican paramilitary group formed on the 10th of December 1974. Its aim was to remove Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom and create a socialist republic encompassing all of Ireland. Three INLA members died with the seven members of the IRA during the hunger strike in 81. The INLA, although capable of atrocities such as the murder of MP Airy Neve in a car bomb attack at the Houses of Parliament in London, was never seen as organised and was known for its infighting. But this all changed in 1982 when IRA veteran Dominic McGlinchey was released from jail. Born in 1954 and known as Mad Dog, McGlinchey was one of 11 siblings born into a staunchly Republican family in the north of Ireland. Back in 1971, he'd been interned without charge for 10 months in the Mays prison, and he was a free man for under a year before he was back inside on firearm charges. In this period in 1975, he married his wife Mary and they had three children. He joined the IRA and was involved in numerous operations before in 1977, he was convicted in the Republic of Ireland of hijacking a police vehicle and threatening officers with a gun. But whilst in prison, he argued with IRA members, and it's unclear, as in, as is so much in these stories, whether he was asked to leave or chose to, but he parted ways with the IRA. On his release, McGlinchey joined the INLA, and he quickly made an impact becoming director of operations. He implemented instant changes, ruthlessly putting an end to dissent within the organisation and bringing in new active members. And the nickname Mad Dog? Well, that was for his absolute ruthlessness, which we will hear about in today's story. 
Ballykelly is in County Londonderry in Northern Ireland, around 50 miles east of Derry, with a population of just over 2,000. The site, formerly known as RAF Ballykelly, was handed over to the British Army as Shackleton Barracks on the 2nd of June 1971. When we joined the story in December 1982, soldiers stationed at the barracks often headed into Ballykelly, and one of their favourite haunts was a bar and a disco known as the Drop-In Well. It was a fun place with good music, lots of fun and laughter, and it was popular with the locals as well as the army personnel. But then late one evening in December, the music stopped and everything changed. Virtue Dixon told the Londonderry Sentinel paper of her experience of that day, the 6th of December, 1982. Her daughter Ruth was 24, and that evening she was in the drop-in well. Virtue said, and I quote, My second girl Ruth was in the bar at the time. Ruth was 24. It was her birthday that day. She didn't know whether or not to go that day. She asked me, should I go or should I not? I said, sure, why not? It's your birthday. I was in bed with my husband and I heard the sirens. It was for the drop-in well, but I just went to my bed because you heard that so often. My son went to the door and it was his friend who came. I could hear them talking and he said to my son that there was a bomb in the drop-in well in Balakelly and I knew then that Ruth was out there. I still thought she was okay. I thought she would have run to safety and hid or something. You know, you don't think it's going to happen to you. But it got worse and worse. People went out looking for her. They looked all night and couldn't find her. We didn't go, my husband and I. We stayed at home praying. I was listening to the radio and it was getting worse and worse. We didn't get her all night and then it came to the morning. So my son, he was 19 at the time. He went up again with one of the girls. She was a nurse. Two of them went up to the hospital. They'd rung up hospitals to see if she was in it. They went to the hospital and they went into the morgue, of course, and that's where they found Ruth, lying on the floor. It was a terrible sight. What met my son was shocking. I couldn't even describe it too much. Terrible. That's where they found her. He came down. I looked out of the window at the car and he wasn't driving. She was driving and I knew then. When they came in, him and his father were crying and I wasn't. I thought, why am I not crying? I just stood there. I cried plenty afterwards. Her wee boy of five had to be told. I thought, I can't do it. It was her son. I couldn't tell him. I couldn't go up and tell him that with him lying in bed. I don't know if it was my son or my husband went up to him. He said, does that mean I won't see my mammy anymore? Ruth Dixon had been in the bar of around 150 other people that night just having fun when she became a victim of a bomb attack by the INLA under the leadership of McGlinchey. One of the members of the INLA left a bomb in the pub, estimated to be up to about £10 and small enough to fit into a handbag. The bomb, as so often the case, had been carefully placed to cause maximum casualties. It was located beside a support pillar, so that when it exploded at just after 11.15pm, when the bar was at its absolute busiest, the heavy roof came down, 
with many of the people inside either killed or injured by the masonry falling upon them. Martin McCann, who was a 17-year-old barman at the drop-in well at the time, explained what happened to him. To me, before everything happened, it was just a normal day, he said. Going to work, serving people behind the bar, the crack was good, the music was good and there was plenty of noise and plenty of people. I was one of the lucky ones, I didn't get hurt. I remember I dropped the lid of a Perno bottle at the time the blast went off. That saved me because I bent down to pick it up. I didn't see anything, only the flash. That's all I can remember at the time, being put through to the kitchen and then the darkness and flickers of flame. The noise was deafening. My ears were ringing with the explosion. The manager of the drop-in well, Peter Cook, had just popped out on an errand a few moments before the bomb exploded. When he returned, he was faced with a terrible scene, and he described the devastation that he saw following the bomb, saying, It was chaos, bodies lying everywhere, people screaming. I've never seen a sight like it in my life. Even the most hardened member of the emergency services wasn't prepared for the sights, smells and noises that greeted them as they tried to rescue survivors, with the last living person pulled from the rubble at 4am. But not all of those who had lost their lives were removed from the scene of horror until about 10.30 the next morning. And in the cold light of day, the final toll was devastating, with six civilians and 11 soldiers losing their lives, and many more injured, some with life-changing injuries. And for just being in a bar relaxing and having fun. Those who lost their lives were 24-year-old Ruth Dixon, 25-year-old Carol Watts, 19-year-old Angela Hull, 21-year-old Patricia Cook, 21-year-old Valerie McIntyre, 17-year-old Alan Callahan. Corporal David Salthouse, who was 23 and married. Private Stephen Smith from Wellington in Somerset, aged 24 and married. Corporal Clinton Collins from Stockport, 20 years old and married. Lance Corporal Stephen Bagshaw from Tim Whistle in Cheshire, 21 years old. Private David Murray from Stockport, 18 years old. Lance Corporal David Stitt from Cheadle, 27 years old. Private Neil Williams from Chester, 18 years old. Private Paul Delaney from Warrington, 18 years old. Lance Corporal Philip McDonoghue from Warsaw, 26 years old and married. Private Shaw Williamson from Stockport, 21 years old. Private Terence Adam from Sydenham Hill in London, 20 years old. All those unfulfilled lives taken and their lives of their families and friends devastated. As you've heard, three of the civilians killed were still in their teens, with one, 19-year-old Angela Hull, celebrating her engagement to one of the soldiers who survived the attack that night. 25-year-old Carol Watts was killed, and her sister, Sharon, said, Carol was married with two children aged six and two. She was 25 when she was killed. She was killed instantly. My other sister, Nicola, was 19 at the time. She was very badly injured. The hospital staff told us to get two graves dug because we'd lost both of them, but she fought. But after that, she never enjoyed good health. She suffered badly and was mentally tortured. We will never know what Nicola went through or what she experienced. You could nearly say that the bomb ended her life. 
and 21-year-old Pat Cook became the 17th and final victim of the bombing when she died from her injuries 10 days later. Her brother Peter, who we've heard from, was the owner of the pub, with one of her other brothers being the manager. He said, She was the baby in the family. She was spoiled. We loved spoiling her and she loved us. One of the comments at the post-mortem, the doctor who did it, didn't understand how she lived so long because of her injuries. I'm sure part of that was the way she loved us and we loved her. She was trying to hold in there and we wanted her to hold in. It was such a sad loss. And their dad was the local undertaker who helped bury many of those killed at the drop-in well. The small community was just devastated by this atrocity. Eleven of the soldiers who died were from the Cheshire Regiment, two from the Army Catering Corps and one from the Light Infantry. Bob Stewart, now an MP, was a company commander in the Cheshire Regiment at the time and he lost six soldiers from his company. He was quickly at the scene and later said, It was deadly silent and very black. As I shone my torch I could see people who were either dead or dying. I had to not only be the incident commander through the night, but it took me six hours to identify my men. I then had to bring them home. Suspicion for the attack naturally fell on the IRA, but they condemned the bombing, saying that they would not have launched an attack that would have a high risk of civilian casualties. And shortly afterwards, the INLA issued a statement of responsibility saying the following. We believe that it is only attacks of such a nature that bring it home to people in Britain and the British establishment. The shooting of an individual soldier for the people of Britain has very little effect in terms of the media or in terms of the British administration. In their statement they also described those civilian killed as consorts. And in a later interview about the attack, McGlinchey attempted to justify the unjustifiable by saying that the Dropping Wells owner had been warned six times to stop offering entertainment to British soldiers and that the owner and those who socialised with the soldiers, I quote, knew full well that the warnings had been given and the place was going to be bombed at some stage. The attack at the Dropping Well escalated Dominic McGlinchey to one of the most wanted men in Britain and the security forces were under pressure to find him. And on the 12th of December 1982, just six days later, they thought they had. According to the Royal Ulster Constabulary, RUC, they believed that McGlitchie was being taken across the border to the south of Ireland. The car they believed he was in went through a roadblock and they opened fire. There was no sign of McGlitchie but two members of the INLA were killed when their car was fired at. The dead men had, allegedly, been seen with INLA leader McGlitchie in the Republic earlier in the day. They were 21-year-old Roddy Carroll and claimed by security forces as the INLA's top gunman in Armagh, along with 30-year-old Seamus Grew. Seamus was married with a family and it was suggested that he was in charge of military operations for the INLA. Neither man was armed when they were killed. The IUC press statement said that the two men had been in a car that had been driven through a police checkpoint and that the vehicle had been chased at speed before being forced to a halt. 
The driver jumped out of the vehicle and the police, believing they were about to be fired on, themselves opened fire. Both occupants were shot. But many in Northern Ireland were angered by these killings and members of the Roman Catholic clergy were demanding an independent inquiry. Sinn Féin, the political arm of the IRA, accused the police of carrying out summary executions. I'll let Guardian journalist Ian Cobain explain what happened next in his own words. IUC Constable John Robinson was charged with the murder of Seamus Grew. The prosecution case was that he'd emptied his pistol into Carroll from a few feet, reloaded, walked around the car to where Grew was climbing out, and shot him from a distance of a few inches. Although Constable Robinson was cleared, as he believed his life to be in danger, his trial did not run smoothly. He admitted in court he had not told the truth when interviewed by detectives investigating the shooting. He told the judge that senior officers had ordered him to give a false account in order to conceal that the dead men had been under surveillance by an army unit and also to hide the fact that intelligence about them had been supplied by a special branch informer. Furthermore, Robinson said, there had been no roadblock and no high-speed chase. The deaths of these two men and others were investigated by John Stalker as part of his investigation into an apparent state shoot-to-kill policy in Northern Ireland, where many Republicans believe that the British Army and the RUC were operating a shoot-to-kill policy where suspected terrorists were deliberately killed without any attempt to arrest them. Stalker was removed from the inquiry before publishing his findings, and the inquiry was then headed by Colin Sampson of West Yorkshire Police, but his findings were never made public. No inquest has ever been completed into either of these two deaths, and it's understandable why many feel there was a major cover-up, but the details of this are for another podcast to this one. As an aside, Sean Grew's brother, Desi, was a member of the IRA killed by the SAS in 1990, as he and another man went to recover AK-47s from an agricultural shed, unaware it was under surveillance. Just weeks before he died, Grew had said he wanted to be buried alongside his brother if anything happened to him, and he was buried at Armagh City Cemetery in October 1990, alongside Seamus Grew. An inquest into his death found the SAS had used reasonable force during the operation and that the IRA men's own actions had contributed to their deaths. Going back to the attack at the dropping well, the investigation into what had happened in the bombing found out that the attack very nearly never took place. Just the day before, an INLA member and his girlfriend were sent to a safe house in County Donegal to pick up a charger for the bomb. When they arrived, there was nothing for them to collect. But later that day, the INLA man returned to the property where the charger was now ready for him to pick up. He then took the charger back to Derry, where the bomb was being prepared. In June 1986, four members of the INLA, two men and two women, all from Derry, were jailed for life for the attack. They were 29-year-old Helen Semple and her partner, 25-year-old Eamon Moore, and 40-year-old Anna Moore and her 19-year-old daughter Jacqueline's 40-year-old boyfriend, Patrick Schotter. 
Jacqueline Moore was sent to prison for 10 years for manslaughter, although she was described by detectives as, I quote, a somewhat immature, simple and giddy-minded young girl. During the court case, Anna Moore made clear that the INLA were absolutely aware of the possibility of significant civilian casualties. In fact, she outlined how the INLA team had been to the bar on several occasions and I quote, see if there are enough soldiers to justify the possibility of civilian casualties. Justice Robert Carswell sentenced the four in Belfast Crown Court and said, the perpetrators were callously prepared to let anyone there be murdered or maimed for them to accomplish their objective of attacking the soldiers. A memorial stone has been erected at Shackleton Barracks, close to the town of Ballykelly, with the names of the 17 dropping world victims cut into the smooth marble there. And next week in the second part of two, we will talk about the events that happen next. So what do you make of what we've heard today? As someone not living in Northern Ireland in the 80s, it's hard to understand these murders. And if you look at any of the forums online, you will see just how strong emotions flow. All I would say to conclude is I just feel so sorry for the family and friends of all those we've heard about today who were killed. Just must have been the most devastating loss for them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. Do join me next week for the next part of this story. And if you would like to discuss what you've heard today or any aspect of UK True Crime, please join the Facebook group. And to support the show and claim your two months free membership, please head to patreon.com. There are a ton of benefits. Have a look and hopefully you'll join me there. So that's all for me for this week. So until we speak again on Tuesday, have a good one. Take it easy, and despite all the others, do please stay classy. Cheerio. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+ plus. terms and conditions apply. See website for details.